Well, good morning. Welcome to worship. Uh, plenty of seats. I hope you're comfortable wherever you're sitting. Uh, I hope you're having a good weekend. Uh, I know this is a stressful time. Let's just acknowledge that. Uh, this week, a, a little boy said to his dad, Dad, the lunch lady said some really bad words today. His dad looked at him and he said, Son, you've got to understand your mother's under a lot of stress these days. <laughs> so no doubt, uh, you as everybody around you is under a lot of stress these days. But one of the interesting things is that God does not relieve the stress. He makes us large enough to confront it and to get through it. And so as we talk about uh, the beginning of Holy Week today, we're talking about Palm Sunday called Passion Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week. Uh, we're talking about the fact that God gave, gave, came to give us what we needed to deal with life. Uh, you've heard it said, and it's very bad theology, God will never give you more than you can handle. He will always give you more than you can handle. Why? Because he's wanted, he wants to teach us how to handle bigger things. Uh, big God, small problems, small God, big problems. Uh, so the fact that you might be feeling stressed and overwhelmed right now is not, is not news. The news, and the good news is this, that Jesus has come that we would have what we need uh, to confront, to face, to be comforted in the midst of any and every trial and temptation and a terrible situation that comes our way. So here we are uh, at what we call Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday. Certainly it wasn't called that then, uh, but it commemorates Jesus' entering Jerusalem on his way to the cross. So it commemorates Jesus coming in to the holy city on his way to what he knew would be uh, his, his death. Uh, dying for the sins of humankind. Uh, he's already said this earlier in uh, Luke's gospel, so we understand that he knew, he understood what he was doing and what it, uh, it meant. <clears throat> and so, so Palm Sunday uh, culminates in Jesus fulfilling his God-given purpose to redeem the world. And so what we call Palm Sunday was simply the occasion where three times a year the people of Israel were commanded by God uh, through his word, through his prophets and the priests, to come to Jerusalem if possible. If they could, from wherever they lived, they would come to Jerusalem to celebrate three feasts. Uh, and the biggest uh, of these feasts was, of course, Passover. And so they came from out of, outside of the, the uh, Israel-Palestine area. They came from uh, all parts of Israel-Palestine. Uh, uh, and so the city was filled with people, packed with people. And uh, it was a time of great expectation, anticipation, but it also it was a very tense time. It was a very stressful time. Uh, for these folks. So what was Jesus uh, walking into in Jerusalem? If you have a Bible, uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 37, if you would uh, uh, send somebody somewhere in the house to get one, uh, maybe you have a phone handy, uh, look at uh, Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 37. <clears throat> so here you have Jesus uh, coming into the holy city of Jerusalem. So Luke tells us this, when Jesus came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, a road comes over a hill out of the desert, from up out of the, the, the Jordan River Valley, uh, past Jericho, winding up, and as you come over this hill, it's breathtaking. Uh, you, you pass through a little village called Bethany, and as you come over the brow of that hill, you see the city in front of you. Now you're looking west uh, toward what would be the, the Mediterranean Sea, but you see this incredibly beautiful city. It's truly breathtaking. And as you look down that hill, you see uh, down to your right uh, all these olive groves and, and, a, and a place where they, they press the, the oil out of the olives called a Gethsemane. So these are the places that you read about in the Bible that you can literally walk uh, through 
to this day. So when Jesus uh, came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So these were not just the 12 disciples uh, that we know about. These are, these are all the people who considered themselves a disciple of Jesus, one who had sat under his teaching, one who saw in him the hopes of Israel fulfilled. Uh, so these could be people from Galilee. These could, could be people from the immediate area. It was just uh, uh, not too long before this occasion when Jesus had been in Bethany and had uh, healed, uh, risen uh, Lazarus from the dead. Uh, that was the place also where he was anointed with oil by uh, Lazarus' sister Mary. Uh, so there are lots of people locally and uh, across the, the whole breadth and width of the nation. And then those who had heard about him were, were all caught up in this moment. Last week I mentioned that when people came into Jerusalem for this occasion, they would sing these psalms. You know, the psalms were originally songs. And they would sing these particular psalms from 120 to 134 in the psalms. We call them psalms of ascent. That's because anywhere you go, uh, anywhere you come from on your way to Jerusalem, you're going uphill because Jerusalem is, is high. And so as they ascended the road from whatever angle they came into the city, they would sing these psalms. Uh, and so lots of people were there celebrating. And now in the midst of that, uh, these disciples that know Jesus are, are singing his praises and, and it catches up the entire crowd. The entire crowd is caught up in this. And they're saying things like this. Blessed is a king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now they're quoting from the prophets, from Zephaniah, Zechariah. Uh, you can see this in Matthew 21 uh, as well. And so they're, they're, they're calling out these praises and they're recognizing Jesus as a king which on one hand is a wonderful compliment, on the other hand is a very dangerous uh, situation for everybody because Jesus coming into that city can see not only the beautiful city with the wall around it, he can not only see the temple, but he sees adjacent to the temple the fortress Antonia. And the fortress Antonia is where uh, Herod uh, and his, his officers would supervise the city. And so this place was a powder keg and so to call out that you were a king uh, or to have somebody call you out as a king would be offensive to Herod. It would be offensive to the Roman soldiers because they didn't really care who was king, but if somebody was claiming to be the king, that meant there was a conflict and the whole city could erupt in a riot. And that would be bad for everybody. Uh, the religious leaders uh, didn't like the idea that Jesus was being referred to in these prophetic texts that are being called out as the king who fulfills the promises of God. So it was very, very awkward. Uh, for those people who, like the Pharisees and the Romans and Herod, who were watching this very closely, hoping nothing bad happened during this week. And so the crowd's screaming out, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And it says some of the Pharisees in the crowd, uh, religious leaders, people with lots of influence, people who really had the, 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 the popular uh, uh, control of the city, a smaller group called the Sadducees, also Jewish religious leaders, had the, the, the formal power, but the Pharisees really were the ones that everybody looked to for leadership. And their leadership is threatened because Jesus has been calling them out as well. And so one of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke your disciples. Now this was said in the first century. Uh, people still say this 
Uh, maybe you've noticed it. Maybe people have said to you, hey, uh, look, stop talking so much about Jesus. Too much Jesus, too much Bible. It's pretty annoying. Now, it might be that you are being annoying in, in, in inappropriate ways at inappropriate times. You're, you're bringing up Jesus or you're, you're, you're just mugging people in Jesus' name. It's more often not that, that if you have an opinion that is supported by your understanding of what God's Word says, and, and under Jesus' lordship and authority, you say something, even then, people can say, you're being annoying. Uh, you're being annoying for holding a point of view that is uncomfortable to me or uh, is um, offensive to me. And so it, it, it's happened, it was happening then, it happens now. Don't be put off if people say, hey, uh, stop talking about that. And just simply in the, in the kindest way possible say, what is it that I'm saying? Is it how I'm saying it that's bothering you? Is it something about me that's bothering you? Is, is this message of hope that I, I claim in Christ, I cling to in Christ, is that offensive to you? And gently maybe draw them out. This is what Peter says. Be prepared always to give a reason for the hope that is within you. And do this with gentleness and respect. So these people weren't doing anything outrageous. They were simply in a very festive moment calling out their praises to the one who, that they had seen ra- raise Lazarus from the dead. They had seen him give sight to the blind. Uh, they had seen him heal uh, paralyzed people. They had seen so many demonstrations of God's power in Jesus that they couldn't hold themselves back from calling out the obvious. They were simply uh, identifying reality at that moment. But this was still offensive. It's, it was still offensive to these Pharisees. And so they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Shut them down right now. And this is what Jesus says. I tell you. It's almost like that resigned of, God, I wish I could. You know, boy, to please you, I'd do anything. However, but in this case, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. If they don't say my, sing these praises, the very stones that we're walking over will cry out praises to God. Now, this wasn't some arrogant you know, uh, moment for Jesus. I'm so awesome. It was that God is so present. In times of stress and strain, we want to remember that God is present. Not to paper over our fears, not to paper over our frustrations, not to paper over the threats uh, of, of your well-being and possibly even your life but to recognize that he is with you. And that can't help but call out some sense of praise and gratitude from us. Lord, thank you for being with me. If I live, I live in you. If I die, I die in you. If I succeed, I succeed in you. If I fail, I fail in you. You're not over-spiritualizing things. You're recognizing the spiritual power and presence of God in all things. So it's really calling out reality. And that's what happens here. If they keep quiet, the stones themselves will cry out. There's something bigger here, you Pharisees. And if you were paying attention to what God has been doing, you'd know. Because these people that you, in a sense, despise, and you control, and you intimidate, and you dominate, and you manipulate, they have understood something that you don't seem to have understood, that God is on the move, God is in this place, God is entering this city, God is going to redeem this city. He's keeping his promises. That's what these passages out of Zechariah and Zephaniah are about. These people weren't making this up. They were quoting the very word of God in the context of it coming into the city of God. Uh, They were quoting Psalm 118 here. You see the power of this? It's not, not them projecting something. It's them recognizing something. Are you recognizing God's presence in you? Are you recognizing God's presence around you? If not, pay closer attention. 
God will use almost anything to call your attention to him if you're simply paying attention to him. So that was what Jesus was seeing coming into Jerusalem. This whole panoply, this whole panorama of things that were, that were uh, significant. But what was Jesus feeling? And how do we even know what Jesus is feeling? Isn't that a bit presumptuous to assume that we would know what Jesus is feeling? Well, the only reason we know what Jesus was feeling is that we get to see him express his feelings. And, he, and we get to hear him interpret his feelings. So as we move through uh, this passage in Luke 19, <clears throat> we get to uh, 43 to 44. And so this is what Luke tells us again. As, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, as he gets closer to it, he wept over it. Uh, this is a sobering moment. If, if you've never tried to memorize uh, Bible passages, I suggest you start with John 6, 11. Uh, Jesus wept. It's a good starting place. Two words. Jesus wept. Uh, well, people weep. You weep. Uh, I, this week, I, I saw a picture. Janet was putting uh, scrapbooks together, all these pictures that that had been accumulating, and, and these are some old pictures that she was organizing, and it was a picture of, of my mom and her mom, and it, it was this beautiful picture, and it was the only picture we have of them both together. They liked each other, but they were always with other people, so this was a, a moment when they were together, and, and my mom uh, died way too young, and Janet's mom um, uh, suffers from dementia, is, a, is in a memory care facility, and so is, is pleasant, is wonderful, but she's not her. And so as I looked at this picture of my mother-in-law and my mother, I, I just, my eyes filled up. I felt my, my throat getting tight. I felt choked up. Uh, I was just so uh, moved by seeing them and, and, and so thankful for what they've been in my life. Uh, and the fact that my mom's not here, and, and really um, Janice's mom's in many ways not here. And so I wept. It was a very brief moment. You wept over many things in your life some out of anger, some out of failed pride. But mostly you've wept for things that moved you and touched you deeply, right? So that's what's going on with Jesus. Uh, it says that Jesus wept when, when he came to see Mary and Martha, and they were grieving over Lazarus' death just prior to him raising Lazarus from the dead. And now he weeps over the city. Uh, tears are a beautiful gift from God. I know guys especially, most of us guys are not comfortable crying. Uh, and, and yet tears are such a gift, a way of expressing deep feelings, uh, to put things in context. What am I feeling? What am I experiencing? And so we see Jesus doing this. Jesus, fully God, fully man, shows us how to be in touch with our emotions in a powerful way. Because again, these, these are not just free-floating, unattached emotions. These are emotions absolutely consistent with, congruent with the moment. And here's why we know that. It says he wept over the city and says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. What's he weeping over? His fear? No, I don't think so. He's weeping over the fact that all these people are oblivious to the fact that God's peace is available to them. And yet he knows that they yearn for it. And so this unrequited peace, uh, the situation that they're in, the stresses and strains that they are experiencing daily, the pressures that are grinding them daily, the uncertainties of their life daily, looking at their beautiful little children wondering, will they survive this Roman occupation? Will they survive the challenges of this world? 
Uh, so he's weeping over what he sees people experiencing. If people ever say to you, you know, I don't really think that God cares. How could God care in a world of suffering? I'll tell you how God cares. He weeps over it, and then he does something about it. That's the God that we call people to. That's the God that we worship and, and honor uh, today as we gather and worship, but also as we go into this holy week to remember all these things, to commemorate and to see the culmination of everything Jesus uh, came to do. So if you'd only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And part of that is an inherent promise, and I'm going to reveal some things to you. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Maybe you're feeling a bit of that right now. Hemmed in on every side. I can't even go outside. I'm not sure if I have a job. I'm not sure if, if I'm going to get this virus or not. Or I, I might have it. I coughed. I sneezed. So he's saying uh, some, de some desperate days are going to come upon you in this place. And he says, they will dash you to the ground. This is a horrific thing that Jesus is seeing. He understands. You and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize a time of God's coming to you. Now he's not speaking to these dear people necessarily who are praising him as the one who comes in the name of the king who actually is the king. He's talking about this whole culture that desperately wants to get it right and is so conflicted that they don't understand that God is making it right. And, the, and these parties that are playing off of one another are creating a tinderbox of conflict that's going to explode. And about 40 years from when Jesus said this, and one generation later, in fact, the city of Jerusalem was leveled. Uh, no stone upon another, just absolutely decimated. So all, these, all these, this, this prophecy, this, this recognition of what would be uh, came true. So it causes Jesus to weep. He could see what was, he could see what could be, and then he could see what would be. Doesn't that put you in some kind of weepy moment when you realize, gosh, it could be so good. If this person just stopped doing this, if they just started doing this, if they would just listen to this wise counsel, if they would just accept this help, or if these people would only offer help, if these people who have the resources would just give those resources, things would come right. And we find, we find ourselves in that weeping moment where we go, oh, it's so close, but it's... Oh. So Jesus could see what was, what could be, what would be. He felt, he felt the yearning for relief and redemption that we have. He felt the heaviness of humankind. He saw the walled city, the temple, the fortress Antonia, the people. He saw the city under siege, in flames, riven with fear and hatred, and then destroyed. He sees that in people. He sees that in places. He sees that in societies. He sees that in cultures. And he came to redeem all of it. He came to redeem all of it. And he is redeeming all of it. He might be frustrated that it's not happening faster. But it's happening. Let me put it like this. His triumphal entry is like the opening ceremony at the Olympics. The Olympics that aren't going to happen this year, but will happen uh, next year, which gives you more time to get in shape for whatever event you think might be yours uh, or to save the money you need to save to, to go and, and be part of the Olympics. But you know how it goes. Uh, on that opening night ceremony, uh, you could think, well, that's kind of a waste of time. No, no, no. That sets the stage for everything to come, right? The Olympians make a triumphal entry. 
all the teams come in. And it's spectacular. If you've watched it, you know. It's fantastic to see all the teams come in, Winter or, or Summer Olympics, all the teams coming in, these young, uh, healthy, vibrant uh, athletes. Um, anything is possible. I, who knows? I might get a medal. Our, 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 our country might prevail. Um, and there's some countries that never will prevail, but they're just happy to be there, and everybody loves them being there. So they get, often get bigger cheers than some of the big teams, right? But victory has, victory, has, victory has yet to be decided. Victory is still out there. They make that triumphal entry into the stadium, and anything is possible, but what is going to happen? Nobody yet knows. It could go well, it could go badly. We see all the players coming in, all the coaches. What are they thinking? What are, what are those, those athletes dreaming of? What will they do? How will they be different? If, if, even if they win, even if they lose, how will they be different? How will this move them and shape the rest of their life? So here we see competing religious, economic, political, and military leaders in this setting in Jerusalem. We see all of Israel's history narrowing to a single defining moment, Calvary. It's as if all history from, from creation itself has come down, 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 down to this moment. This is where this week goes. This is how the week ends. The triumphal entry uh, really ends from a human perspective in absolute tragedy. Uh, and as somebody has said, uh, <laughs> it, it was Friday, but Sunday's coming. So what were they expecting? Who were they expecting? Who weren't they expecting? This is, this is what happens in this week. So I, I'm, I'm going to ask you this week uh, to read from Luke 19 or, or Matthew 21 through uh, what we call the Last Supper. Uh, pick up the reading from the triumphal entry, read through that week that Jesus goes through that culminates in, um, in, in the, the good part culminates in, in the Last Supper. Uh, that would be John 13. So read those. If, if you don't know where they are in the Bible, figure it out, Google it, ask somebody. But or just how about starting in the beginning of one of the Gospels and read it all the way through and you'll find it. But when you get to that place of the triumphal entry to the Last Supper, savor that. Make that between today and Thursday. And then on Friday, read the rest of the story in, in, in Luke, in Matthew, in John. So that you'll be prepared to celebrate Easter. You'll, you'll, you'll be able to go through up to Monday, Thursday, which is when we celebrate this meal that Jesus had with his disciples. You'll be able to walk through Friday knowledgeable about what happened. And then when you get to Sunday, you're going to be ready to really celebrate Easter. So let me pick this up again. Uh, in this moment, many were expecting a Messiah from Israel and for Israel. A Messiah that God would bring out of Israel to save Israel. What they didn't expect uh, was what was going to happen. Because what they thought is that they needed to be saved from the Gentiles. The idea was we'll, we'll experience a Messiah from God who will save us from the Gentiles. What they didn't understand was that the Messiah was for Israel and for the Gentiles. God was keeping his promises to bless all nations. So that's, that's part of the answer. To who were they expecting and who weren't they expecting? 
How do we know this? Well, uh, well, I'll just pick one verse that is very familiar to you to make the point. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have uh, eternal life. Life starting now forever. Why is this possible? Well, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. The world already stands condemned. It's not hard to make a case that the world is lost in so many ways. The, the, the world is flawed. That anybody who wants to make the case of their own righteousness has, has, a, has a really hard case to make. All evidence points to the contrary. Even if you've been well-intentioned your whole life, any honest person would say, you know what, I, yeah, I'm not perfect. I've fallen far short of the glory of God. I stand condemned. So the world is already condemned. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So when you hear people who are mocking uh, your faith, perhaps, critiquing your faith about, oh, you guys are so concerned that everybody's going to hell, or you think everybody's going to hell, you can gently, again, push that to the side and say, let me tell you real clearly what my faith is about. It's that God wants no one to go anywhere but into his arms. <laughs> the God I know, the God I walk with, the God I serve wants everyone to be saved, everyone to know his love, his mercy, his compassion, his peace. He wants that for all people, at all places, at all times. He came to save the world. Period. So, Jesus said, confirming this, John 6, 38, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. Uh, Jesus said many things like this. Uh, these famous I am statements. I am the, the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I, I'm the resurrection and the life. Uh, I am the good shepherd. I'm the bread of life. Uh, all these I am statements from Jesus, as well as some statements that are called the I came statements. I came that you might have life in all its fullness. I came to save this, to seek uh, uh, the lost. Uh, I came, I came, I came. And so we know that Jesus um, was ready and, and was very much aware of what he came to do, who he was doing it. So he says in John 6, 38, I have come to do the will of of him who sent me, and his will is to save the world. So who is Jesus to you? Uh, do you recognize this time as God coming to you? Remember Jesus was weeping over, over Jerusalem saying, if, if only you would recognize, if only you would recognize that this is the time that God is coming to you. Are you recognizing that? In the midst of your present situation, are you recognizing that God is coming to you? He's with you. He's for you. He might be letting you go through hard things to teach you some, some big lessons. He might be protecting you from some things. Who knows what he's doing? Nobody will know until they get close enough to him to say, Lord, what are you doing? Help me to walk by faith as you do your will in me. Don't become passive about it. I'll, I'll kick back until God tells you what to do. No. Seek him. Ask, seek, knock. Go hard for God. Lean into it. Open his word. One of the great travesties of the American church is how few people actually know the Word of God or read the Word of God. If it's the most essential book and the foundational book, why don't we take time to understand the content of it? This is one of the amazing conundrums that we live in. So who is Jesus to you? Unless you're in his Word, you won't know. Unless you are in his Word, you won't recognize God's timing in your life. So, second big point is this. Your mission and your purpose in life is walking with God and living for Him. 
No matter what you do to earn a living, make a life, your number one mission, your number one purpose is this, walking with God and living for him. So like Jesus, you can too say, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. I have come to do the will of him who sent me. I do it in these settings. I do it with these skills. Sometimes I get paid for the things I do as part of my work. Sometimes it's me giving my time and attention to people that need it. But all of it is about understanding that I've come to do the will of him who sent me. Does that amaze you to think that God sent you into, world, into the world for a purpose? That each one of us have a purpose for which God has sent us into the world? Well, what about somebody who has very limited skills? Who, who might be afflicted with all kinds of big challenges in life? Uh, I don't know. All I know is that God sent them into the world to do a work in them and to do a work through them. I'm not going to try to figure it out or judge it or question God's wisdom or their capacity. I'm simply going to recognize the fact that God sent you into the world for a purpose. Maybe the purpose for which he sends some people in the world is to teach the rest of us lessons that we need to know. And they become, in a sense, teachers and examples. They become a gift from God to us in ways that we have to figure out how to receive it as such. Some people come with so many gifts, so many skills, so many capacities that we say they are a gift to the world because they bring so much that they can do not only to honor God and glorify God, but to bless people in so many ways. Their big challenge is, is figuring out which one to focus on. They have so many opportunities. Wherever you are in that spectrum, you can say with great confidence, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. You have things to learn from him and gifts to give in his name. What could that look like in this age and stage of your life? How about if right now you're sitting here and you're eight and you're saying, this is for adults. I'm, I'm really uh, exempt from this. No, you're not. As an eight-year-old, you've come into the world to do the will of him who sent you. What is uh, your best contribution right now? It could be loving your mom and dad. It could be getting along with your siblings. Uh, it could be playing and becoming strong uh, in, in body and in, in mind, it, doing your homework. Uh, contributing to whatever your family needs. Don't ever discount yourself at any age or stage that you're in. If you're an old person, and right now you, you're not only sequestered because of the coronavirus, but because your capacities are so diminished, you feel like, I'm worthless. Why does even God keep me alive? Don't go there. Just thank him for the life you have and ask him how you can leverage that to his glory and the blessing of people. Oh, I can't hear, I can't see, I, I'm not mobile. Uh-huh. Can you pray? Can you call out to God on behalf of others? Can you be an example of what suffering looks like to those who are freaking out that they might have to suffer like you someday? What will they see that would be ennobling to them that when they get to that point, when everything is falling apart, including their bodies, their minds, that they would say, oh gosh, I remember how he did it. That's what I want to do. I remember how she did it. That's how I want to do it. Lord, give me the strength and capacity to be present to you. I, I got a beautiful, beautiful story from somebody this week who's going through probably the biggest nightmare of, of certainly her life and what anybody would imagine going through in life. And, to, and she wasn't over-spiritualizing. Oh, everything is beautiful. She said, you know, on the, under the list of all the things I don't like, and she listed a bunch of things. It's very, very f wonderful how she could s see that. She did it with humor and grace. But she listed all the things she was missing and not liking about her situation. But also she was giving praise and glory to God in a way that was so authentic. Again, it moved me deeply reading her story. Powerful. Anybody wondering what they would do in her capacity just watches her and says, that's what I'm supposed to do. 
That's who I can be in Christ in this situation. So really, it's recognizing that you have a role to play. Not, not as in play acting, pretending it's okay, or that you're strong, but, but playing a role. I'm calling out to God. Read the Psalms. Half of them are saying, dear Lord, where are you? Now what? There's psalms, there's psalms of lament. Maybe you're singing psalms of lament. Some of them, though, start as laments and end as psalms of praise. You have a role to play. What is it? Your role is, is you being you in Christ. It's that simple. It's you being you in Christ. There's no dialogue to memorize to be in your role. There's no complicated choreography. Where do I sit? Where do I stand? How do I move? You being you is enough. You being present to somebody in a conversation and listening and asking questions that help you understand who they are and what they're going through is enough. That's just you being you. If you have an insight, some awareness of what they're going through that might help them, and you share that, that's simply you being you. If there's nothing you can possibly say, and, and all you do is you feel like, if I say anything, I'm going to start crying, and your eyes are filling up with tears, and you're simply silent, and you feel like a deer in the headlights in front of somebody, you're hoping to comfort. Just sit there, and that will be enough. You being you is enough. If it's you making food, if it's you rearranging your schedule to help them, if it's you giving up some things you were going to spend money on to give money that other people need for a serious situation, that's you being you. You see, all of it counts. That's what it means to have a mission and a purpose to walk with God and live for Him. It's wisely responding to what's happening in you and around you. It's not pleasing others or living up to their expectations. If you find yourself living up to other people's expectations or wondering if you're pleasing them, uh, you've taken a, 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 a bad turn. Get off that bad turn and come back. Because if you feel like you're walking on eggshells around people, there's something unhealthy with that relationship. Nobody should ever feel like they're walking on eggshells around anybody. And if you do, you need to find a way to gently or forcefully confront that and say, look, I'm experiencing this and I'm not liking it. It's uncomfortable. Why are we, why are we in this situation? You might have to leave a relationship if you feel like you're being abused and threatened and walking on eggshells. If you find yourself saying things like, you know, had I not done that, he wouldn't have beat me. Had I not forgotten that, they'd have, they'd have, they'd, they, would, they wouldn't have had to do whatever they did. No, no, no. Consequences are consequences. Be willing to own what you need to own. But understand that you being you is a gift from God to everybody in your presence. And if you're offending them, you can confess and repent and ask forgiveness and reconcile. But if you find that you are being uh, squashed by people, that's not part of you being you. That's not the role you're called to play. It's not pleasing others or living up to their expectations. It's caring for them. Your role being you is to care for people. Does that make sense to you? You being you simply means caring for people. Because you can't meet all their needs, you can't please them, you can't save them. You can simply care for them and direct them uh, to the one who can save them. It's Jesus who came in to the city to save. We can simply care for them in Jesus' name. That's enough. That's your role. You're not the Savior. You're the disciple. You might be the apostle. Uh, you're the hands and feet of Jesus. But don't put that burden on yourself. You being you is simply you being you. That's what's beautiful about a conversation. If Danina and I sit down, we don't have to memorize a dialogue. Uh, you start. It's, we probably both start talking at the same time. Well, how are you doing? What's going on? What's, what's happening? How are the girls? Oh, that song was beautiful. I would have sung it better, but still, it was really, really good. 
See, this is the beauty, beautiful thing about you being you in him. Be interested in people, be encouraging of people, be honest with people. When you embrace your purpose, people are blessed by you being you. That's why Jesus came. That's why he wept. Part of the weeping, I'm sure, was if these people can become who they really were meant to be, that would be awesome. It'll all be worth it. That was what, that's what was going on when Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Jesus, God with us, shows us who God is and what God does and what we can do in his name, what we can be in his name. His presence in us gives us capacity to bear witness to him and to glorify him. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I can't. It, it just comes out of them. It's a natural consequence of being filled with my presence. It just comes out of them. And if they didn't do it, the, the, the stones that they're standing on would have to do it for them. They'll explode with joy if, we, if they don't get it out. So the third final thing I want to say is that by His grace we're included in what God is doing to redeem the world. By His grace we are included in what God is doing to redeem this world. He came into Jerusalem that day for us, but very quickly he said, come with me. We're going through this together. And at the points when only he could do what he could do, he did. But everything else, remember he included people with him. Stay with me, pray with me. Listen to me. Do this in my name. They'll know you're my disciples if you love one another like I've loved you. The power of that, right? By his grace, we're included in what God is doing to redeem the world. Let me read you this passage. I won't comment on it. It's, it's enough just to read it. Out of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Ephesians 2. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, even when our sin had sucked the life out of us. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. They don't earn us our salvation. They're the expression of our salvation. Good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So let me wrap up by saying this. Jesus came into the world with a to-do list, not a wish list. Jesus came into the world with a to-do list. Here's what I've come to do. Here's who I am, and here's what I've come to do. Not a wish list. Gee, I hope they're nice to me. I hope it goes really easy. I hope they listen the first time so I don't have to repeat myself. I hope this whole dying for the sins of the world doesn't have to happen because everybody gets it and comes together. He came with a to-do list. At the most desperate time uh, before his uh, arrest and trial and crucifixion, he said, Lord, if this cup can pass, but what did he say? But not my will, yours be done. Jesus came into the world with a to-do list, not a wish list. Let me ask you this question. Are you living your life as a wish list or a to-do list? If you're living your life as a wish list, everybody around you is really uncomfortable and, and hard-pressed. You're a burden. You're high-maintenance. 
if all you do is wish what everybody else would do, uh, you're not playing fair. Maybe flip your wish list into a do list. I wish I could serve you better. <laughs> I wish I could love you better. That kind of wish list would be okay. Because now you're working on a skill set of how could I learn from the Lord? How could I learn from his word? How could I learn from the encouragement of people and the feedback from people I care about? How I can be caring of them? How, could I, how I can be, pay attention to them and understand them and have empathy and compassion for them? So maybe what you want to do is make a what I wish to be list. What I wish to do list. Who do you want to be for others in Jesus' name? What can you do for others in Jesus' name? Think of Palm Sunday as extending a hand to Jesus, palms up to Jesus, and a hand to others, palms up to them. What Jesus gives me, I give to you. What I need, I receive from the Lord. I care, I care for my own soul before I can do anything to minister to yours. But what I receive from him, I gladly give to you. Remember Peter and John in front of the temple, paralytic comes up to them after the resurrection, says, hey, do you have any money? And they said, look, we don't have any money, but what we have, we give you. And they did. Changed his life. Let his power flow into you and through you to others. Palms up. Go through this COVID moment, coronavirus moment, palms up. Get so used to walking through your day with palms up to the Lord and to people that when you come on the other side of that, when things get back to more normal, you're a palms up person. You create your own to-do list because you go, I just love it. I get so much from God, I love to give it in his name. Let, like Jesus, weep over your sins and the, and the things that oppress others. Pray for them. Give yourself to people in love. This is the power of living palms up to God. So Lord Jesus, that's our prayer, that we would be those people. Because of who you are in us, we would be the people that reflect your goodness and your love and your glory, your compassion, your mercy, your resilience, your resourcefulness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm going to offer you a benediction, and then we're going to have some fantastic music. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us all, giving us everything we need to walk with him in newness and fullness of life, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
I see his love and mercy Washing over all my sins The people sing The people sing Hosanna 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 in the highest Hosanna 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 in the highest I see a generation Rising up to take their place with selfless faith, with selfless faith. I see a near revival stirring as we pray and see. We're on our knees, we're on our knees. Hosanna, Hosanna. things unseen show me how to love like you have loved me break my heart with what breaks yours everything I am for your kingdom's cause as I walk from earth Eternity. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. 